Imperialism is a policy of extending or passing on a country's power and influence through colonization, use of military force and other means. The India before imperialism was ruled by the Mughal Empire from 1526 to 1858, a kingdom that was much larger and much more powerful than any other European country at the time. India was apparently blooming population-wise and the talk of their products reached the farthest corners of the globe. But the Mughal Empire's rule didn't last long and began declining in 1707, granting entrance to outside powers. India is located in the south of the Asian continent, bordering the Arabian Sea and the Bay of Bengal. The British first came into India not only because of the abundance of raw materials, but also the mass potential they saw. The British East India Company took advantage of the collapsing Mughal Empire and broke away from their control to flourish their own company. In 1857, the Sepoy army rebelled that caused the British Empire to come in guns blazing and take over the country. The British rule demolished India through taxation or anything that was made in India and the exportation of raw materials which caused plentiful amounts of famine. There is no memorial to the massacres of the Raj Empire from Delhi in 1857 to Amritsar in 1919, which caused the death of 35 million Indians in totally unnecessary famines that were caused by the British policy. Hi everyone, it's Saisha. Welcome back to my podcast. In today's episode, we are going to be discussing the long-term effects of imperialism in India, as well as the downfalls of the British Empire and British colonization. We see a lot in the media, we see a lot in our history textbooks about the British colonization and what it did and how it enriched the patriotism of the United Kingdom. However, we never have learned about the downfalls of it we've never learned about the negative aspects of it and what it did and its detrimental impacts to many societies around the world that it did colonize and I want to shed light on some of these because they are very close to my heart and I truly feel like we have to acknowledge them because we never learn about them in our textbooks and we never learn about them in our school curriculums. I've gathered information from many different sources and I'm going to be putting it together in this episode. If you want to read the sources and articles and journals for yourself, please feel free to educate yourself on this topic, especially if you do learn about British colonization in history or even if you're interested in it, I feel like it is a very important topic to be educated on. When we speak about the British Empire, when we discuss its legacies, effects and continuing manifestations, what are we referring to exactly? The vague feeling of white guilt, genetistic pride and unarticulated rage pervade a shaky and unexamined definition of the British Empire. A division that is built from a foundation of collective historical amnesia and continues to silence the voices of the people who have lived and continue to live under the weight of imperialism. But we need to be specific. If we want to come to terms with the empire, we need to evaluate and criticize the foundations in which the empire was conceived in Britain. 
For many, the empire has always been a symbol, a symbol in the sense that the acts of colonialization, extraction, and even slavery were primarily understood through secondary objects. For a great deal of time since British and the British people have profited over colonialism, the vast majority of British people did not travel beyond the island's white cliffs, confining their interaction with the empire to songs they sang, the stories they read, and the packaging they saw on the front of tea boxes. This may seem like a banal observation, a general fact known to every over 60-year-old who used to shop in empire stores, but the repercussions of this shallow, iconographic interaction with the empire is part of the reason why British and British people suffer from historical amnesia and why we need to question the pervasive Anglo-centric view. At its height, the British Empire had control over 24% of the globe, with colonies spread from New Zealand to Canada to India and Africa. Such an expanse, funded by the profits of slavery and extraction, was inconceivable to most of the British people. Even with administrators of the empire who sat in wood-panelled offices and wore sand-coloured pith helmets, were from selected families from upper and middle classes. The obscurity of this profession was mystified in Britain and the memories of Nabos from the East India Trading Company gave them a distinct, if not isolated, place in British society. But for most, the empire and its symbolic presence was understood through imagination. The sites of imagination were created through imperial products, which became the popular symbol of British Empire. Collected houses and shown off in the Great Exhibition of 1851, the commercial communication of the empire began to expand rapidly into children's magazines, showcases and the vast empire exhibition from 1924 to 1925. Much is already said about how these developments created popular support for the empire, but it was products at the site of imagination that affected the parameters in which the empire was actually conceived. Even at the height of imperialistic and Genoistic narratives, the empire was a concept that was satanized and angelicized, presented through a particular and calculated lens in terms of ensuring commercial success. Magazines, exhibitions, and songs created a structure that made imperialism conceivable and consumable to the general public. In reality, the empire was far more than a stock image. The British Empire manifested in innumerable ways, convulsing and adapting to each exploit the extent to there was and there is no definition of the British Empire. But as an imaginary construct founded on select symbols, in Britain, the empire was defined, recognized, and reduced to gross simplicity. So the people of Britain didn't actually know what their empire was doing worldwide. These imaginary parameters that contained the British empire were overtly politicized in the imperial articulations of Benjamin Disraeli and later in the justification of colonialization of Africa. It became the state's concern in 1926 to encourage empire trade. The Empire Marketing Board plastered romanticized image of our trade with the East. It became a common trope on popular branding such as Lipton Tea and P.O. Cruises to exoticize the Oriental other as part of the desirability of their products. Empire became a term, it became a selling point, a niche, a popular aesthetic, and this simplicity allowed the empire to be wiped away very easily.
after the wave of decolonization movements and the shift in the empire's place in the public imagination, in the mid-20th century, the profitability of an empire as a quick symbol died away, and the images that adorned popular products and goods died with it. With the word empire erased from popular sites such as Wembley Stadium, formerly known as Empire Stadium, and the imperial magazines out of print, imperialism was quickly to become distorted in memory. The ease in which this occurred was because the empire was never fully realized in the popular imagination. Empire was only its name. Imperialism for the British was a figurative, imaginary, abstract name and it was based on the symbolic. Empires can be easily omitted if it is only one word, if empire is only one image. But for those who came to Britain under colonization, those whose heritage lies in the structure of domination and exploitation, the empire was always far more than a word, and it was a living trauma, and still is. Tackling historical amnesia is not a process of coming to terms with the empire because the terms in which the empire was defined were superficial and essentialized and pejorative. To understand, there needs to be a decoding of what we mean by it. We need to understand that it is not just a term or an assessed subject in history, but a structure of power that permeated people's lives and family history. Debates around the British Empire focused on the condemnation of oppressors, be that in the form of Edward Colston or Cecil Rhodes. However, bringing justice to the past cannot be fulfilled through a myopic focus on the British who defined the empire in rhetoric rather than reality. To truly understand the past and present modes of the empire is to listen to those who were subject to it, to shift the focus from the narratives of the real people behind the products, and to find the lives that never forget the true nature of imperialism. British Empire, there were enormous negative downfalls which I'm going to discuss and shed some light on in this episode. We spoke about the building of infrastructure, however, these railways were actually not done properly and effectively. They were created to support troop movements, to crush uprisings and transport for fright, which also made it very hard for independent India to make changes and alter it. Alfred Russell Wallace, the naturalist and co-discoverer of the theory of evolution through natural selection, wrote The Wonderful Century, which, as the title suggests, was a broadly upbeat summary of what Britain had achieved during the preceding hundred years. In his conclusion, however, Wallace reflected on how the British Empire had behaved in its dealings with the subject races, quote, They, he admitted, had been treated with a strange mixture of good and evil, a world which perhaps no modern commentator outside the former colonies would dare to use to describe any aspect of the British Empire. In the centuries till then, the empire has crumbled and Britain's power has largely evaporated. But in our national memory of Britain's centuries in the sun, the balance between good and evil that Wallace recognised has been tipped decidedly towards the former. 
So it is perhaps unsurprising that a recent YouGov poll revealed that 44% of respondents, when asked, claimed to feel pride rather than regret in the long-lost empire. The problem today is not that our national feelings about the British Empire are too positive or too negative, but that we know too little of the actual history to make a sound judgement. How can we ask people to take pride in or feel regret about a history that is hardly taught in schools and explored very little elsewhere? The empire has been reduced to the abolition of slavery, the building of Indian railways, and some vague talk about the rule of law, British values, and the spread of the English language. Some say that India was a divided country of many different languages spoken in different regions, and this made the people divided. They said that the British colony introduced compulsory English and educational systems throughout the country with the aim of getting a clerical staff amongst Indians. This helped them reduce the cost of administration and they also believed that Indians educated to their system would gradually come to believe in their own ideology. However, this did benefit Indians in a total different manner as they had a common language for communication. Some also go farther and say that Indians began to have a better outlook on the world, society and systems and overall helped to modernise the people of India. However, you could see the opposite side of this where they abolished their identity and took away that side to them. British politicians of all parties have spent the last half century travelling the world asking nations that were invaded by British armies to celebrate our shared history, culture and language as if it was some consolation prize in some great historical raffle. We then collectively recoil in hot outrage when Indians point out that their share of the global economy slipped from 23 to a mere 4% under the British rule. We're similarly insulted when the Chinese bring up Britain's century of state-sponsored military-backed up drug punishing. This image of the empire, which is a list of nations who we beketh various precious gifts, ignore the facts that the imperial conquests and centuries of the economic and military domination are not the only mechanisms through which nations can acquire railways, education, systems and the rule of law or worldly languages. If that were true, Japan, Thailand and a handful of other nations that avoided being absorbed into one of the other European empires would be trapped in the Hobbesian mirror of lawless feudalism. Their dirt roads clogged up with ox carts driven by illiterate farmers. Yet somehow, without being colonised, Japan managed to construct a national railway with some of the fastest, most punctual and comfortable trains in the world. India would have managed to do the same thing without the UK. The Chinese too have managed to become the second largest economy in the world without any assistance from the British. So the empire was not a singular phenomenon. The indigenous people on the ground did not encounter the empire, they encountered individuals. There were brutal soldiers and traders motivated by personal greed, careerism or racial theory. Many more of them were acknowledgeable, but there were also thousands of men and women who were unquestionably decent. The empire found places for uses.
Many of the good were missionaries and abolitionists of the 18th and 19th century, equivalents of aid workers, basically. They traveled to distant lands and risked their lives with good intentions to the humanitarianism, and they were also fused with racial paternalism and the urge to spread their faith. And the empire did bring developments and peace to some parts of the world, though many parts of those developments were fleetingly arranged primarily to suit British interests and delivered war and devastation to other regions. British missionaries and colonial administrators did confront or end terrible practices such as the ruling burning of widows in India and the superstitious killing of newborn twins of native Nigeria, but this same empire acted with extreme resistance and incredible brutality when it encountered indigenous resistant people. Let us not forget that within living memory, tens of thousands of Africans were murdered, tortured and mutilated in British concentration camps in India. This is not a revisionist theory or a left-wing interpretation of the past. This is a historical fact and an acknowledged crime for which British governments have paid compensation to surviving victims. The British Empire, like every other empire in history, was created to enrich the imperial mother country, not to realise some vague civilising mission. It would have been the greatest aberration in world history had it been otherwise. Yet, we still somehow convince ourselves and expect others to believe that this nation set aside its own financial interests, ignored the desperate plight of British poor, and dispatched great fleets of ships and vast armies and soldiers and administrators across the oceans to attend the material welfare, educational aspirations and future mass transport requirements of the indigenous people of Asia and Africa.